There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek, and you found this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. It's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us again. Our guest this week is Dr. Tiffany Tajiri. Dr. Tajiri is a licensed and board-certified clinical psychologist, an Air Force veteran, and former Army Clinic Chief. She's the first woman to publish a faith-based combat recovery book, Peace After Combat. Tiffany is the founder of Freedom Rhythm PLC and the nonprofit Stand Up and Recover. She's the creator of Rhythm Restoration, an innovative faith-based method that uses visualization and bilateral stimulation to help those who've endured psychologically painful life experiences. Dr. Dejiri is the co-author of the recovery curriculum at Abundant Church, and she's a fellow podcaster. She's a host on Behind the Service. But most importantly, she's a mother and a wife to a combat veteran. Dr. Dejiri's platform is to teach people how to live an abundant life. Dr. Tiffany Tajiri, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Hey, Chris. Oh, it's such a blessing to be on your show. You're an inspiration. No, likewise. I appreciate that. Thank you. But you know, I have to let our, our listeners know who weren't able to see us right now before we get into the questions. I always challenge our guests every week to see how they dance in the intro music. And you, by far, you dropped the mic. You, you crushed it. So uh, it's going to be an awesome show today. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> right on. <laughs> so two things anyone who listened to that introduction can deduce is that your faith is the foundation of your life and service is the cornerstone. Why did you join the Air Force? Did you come from a military family? Was there a tradition of service? Yeah, I did come from a military family, number one. Um, but I joined the Air Force. I didn't expect to or anticipate joining the Air Force. I was wanting to finally just give back in a bigger way, in a better way. I wanted to serve our country. You know, it wasn't something that was in me, so to speak, from the very beginning. But later, as I evolved in my life, I thought, you know what? This would be an incredible opportunity. It would help me to learn. It would push me outside of my comfort zone. I do enjoy pushing myself, believe it or not, outside of my comfort zone. And I believe the military does a good job at doing that. So I think that's what truly inspired me is that selfless service. And why did you become a psychologist? Ah, because I love to help people. You know, as a young girl, I was always giving advice. I was obsessed with the neuroscience of the brain. When I was in eighth grade in middle school, I did a science fair project, and it was called Which Way, Right or Left? And it was a neuropsychological assessment of various demographics to determine which hemisphere of the brain are we using based on a strategic set of questions. So ever since then, I've been obsessed with the brain and human behavior and how we think and why we think the way we do. You did that in high school? I actually did that in eighth grade. <laughs> Even worse or better. I, I know, say. right? <laughs> so you, I guess, sort of had a predetermined idea of eventually where you wanted to go at age, what's that, about 14, 13? Yeah. yeah. Unbelievable. I'm 52 and still trying to figure it out. Hey, we're still evolving. That's what it's all about. <laughs> so how does an Air Force veteran ultimately end up working for the U.S. Army? Right. What was I thinking? <laughs> what do you root for in the football game? 
Right. Air Force. Hello. <laughs> Aim high. Fly, fight, win. Um, well, I was getting out of the military. And the reason I got out of the military is because I like to color outside the lines. <laughs> I like to be a creative human being. And I think the military can do that to a certain extent, but it doesn't allow me as a creative to totally flourish. So I thought, well, let's me- let me take the next steps. I want to go back to my hometown of El Paso, Texas, which is in Fort Bliss. And I said, you know what? I need to get a job. Obviously, I'm a clinical psychologist for the Air Force. It'll be easy transition to work for the Army. And since there's no Air Force base here in El Paso, it ended up being the Army. And I loved it. You know, it has its ups and downs as with anything. Uh, But I ended up having the blessing to eventually make my way up to being the highest ranking civilian um, in the Department of Behavioral Health at Fort Bliss. And I ran my own clinic, which was one of the largest clinics, behavioral health clinics in the Army. And without giving, I guess, in-depth detail, you know, what sort of things or issues are active duty military facing when they come to see you at the clinic? Well, no, of course we can talk about detail. And I think detail is, you know, they have combat trauma. Um, Of course, we're going to get just run of the mill behavioral health issues and concerns, right? You know, it could be interpersonally related, family, marital issues. Then it could also be more on the diagnostic realm with regards to the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, the DSM-5, right? And we have diagnoses that come in from borderline personality disorder, depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia. So it's just with the human experience. But when it comes to trauma, what we typically tend to see is um, combat-related trauma and unfortunately, military sexual trauma. And a couple other random questions here. Sorry, a little off topic. But in terms of uh, bipolar disorder, mm-hmm. I'm raising this because we had a guest on about a year ago, a two-star general in the Army uh, that was actually relieved of his command because he was diagnosed as being bipolar. Is that something that's common that you see a lot in the military? Or is it just just a numbers game in terms of just society in general? Let me see if I can pull the Army regulation. So Army Regulation 40-501 states that specifically that bipolar disorder is a certain disorder that is not allowed in the military. Now, it's interesting that he made it as far as he did in his career, which is absolutely fantastic. But the reason we end up finding out later down the line is because of certain behaviors that can be maladaptive to a leadership position that we start to notice. And then we start to question those behaviors or those leadership decisions, whether somebody might be in a very low depressive episode or a very high manic episode, um, then it could be concerning as to why somebody, you know, for example, may have just gone off, right, got really pissed off in a situation and just let it rip, or they were up all night, they were sending emails that they probably should have been sending. Those behaviors get us to recognize, hey, maybe this is not the best situation for you. We don't leave anyone who has that sort of diagnosis hanging. Um, They end up medically retiring them. So they receive still all the medical benefits, all the army benefits. It's not a dishonorable discharge, but we just want to make sure that they're fit for duty. And oftentimes the medication that's used for bipolar disorder is not something that they want people deploying on. No, that makes sense. Thank you for that. And again, very impressive in you, the army regulation number. (laughs) And then you touched on at the end, military sexual trauma. Yeah. Is that something that's still very prevalent in today's military? Yeah. So as you know, what happened recently with Vanessa Guillen, that is very much the forefront in the news. Now, military sexual trauma, it can relate from harassment, which was what happened, what they believed happened with Vanessa Guillen, all the way to rape, 
trauma, whatever, you name it. Um, it still happens. It happens in human population in general, period. And so whatever we see in, in our regular human population, we're obviously going to see in the military. And usually the military is more under a microscope than anyone else. And so we tend to see the negative stories more than the positive ones. No, I appreciate that. And I raise that because um, in the the nonprofit work that I do in the veteran nonprofit, one of the programs we fund is virtually software for veterans suffering from post-traumatic stress. And in this software, it's created at the University of Southern California, and there are 14 different scenarios you know, for post-9-11 veterans, but one of them is for military sexual trauma. And, and I flag that because you know, my listeners know I never served one of life's regrets, but when I went out to USC to, to try this technology, uh, you, know, you can't tell from my little Brady Bunch square, but I'm 6'3", 215, I'm not a small guy, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I use the software, and it's literally me standing in a bar with some people, and then you see your eyelids fade to black, and then two minutes later, you, your eyes, eyelids reopen with your predator on top of you. And that scared the hell out of me. Oh, my gosh. So I want to make it, you know, scream from the highest mountaintop about military sexual trauma. And what we need to do, like you said, it's a subset of the population, but it is under more scrutiny and more of a, a spotlight, uh, just given, obviously, the, the military's you know, legacy. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. That gives me goosebumps, that experience that you yeah. had. I'm so glad that people are able to put themselves in someone else's shoes. It really evokes a sense of compassion. And that's really what we need for our survivors. But we also need to make sure that we're not tolerating any BS behavior from anyone um, to include harassment saying, good morning, gorgeous. You look sexy today. That's just the foot in the door. Though I do like comment. Hello. And no, I'm just kidding. I you're saying that to me. reality is it just is the foot in the door to the next step. And so we, you know, in a military environment, very professional, prestigious environment, we want to make sure we're monitoring that. And let's shift gears a bit here, back to your book. What was the inspiration for your book, Peace After Combat? You know, I was a young doctor at that point in time. I was probably about 26 years old, um, a young captain as well. And I had so many individuals coming into my office with combat trauma, believe it or not, from the Air Force. Many people don't expect that. But yes, the Air Force deploys a lot. Um, we had a lot of security forces, special forces, special operators coming in. And so... I was like, you know, one of the big existential questions that came to me was, hey, doc, where has gotten more? You know, I used to have this sense of faith, this sense of spirituality, and that really was what got me through a lot of the negative things that I've had in life, but I've never seen anything to this magnitude or this degree, and I just don't have my faith anymore. I don't believe in God. You know, I've lost my faith, and so that big existential question that was actually the original name of the book is where has gotten more? Um, we wanted to soften it. The publisher, David C. Cook, wanted to soften it because it was a bit abrasive, just asking asking that question, period. So they said, let's rename it Peace After Combat. I like where it's gotten more better. I think it would have sold more too. <laughs> would have helped. So being inspired to write a book and actually writing it are two different things. And I know that because I went through and did my first book earlier this year, and it was two and a half years in the works. But what was your why? Why did you want to write Peace After Combat? Well, I had to answer that big existential question. <clears throat> I felt blessed that I had anointing over my life wherein I was able to answer that question and people resonated with the response that I gave them. And that response provoked a sense of healing within them. And that was so important to me. And I felt like it was great that I was able to do this one-on-one, -on -one, but geez, if I could get it out to the masses, like 
there are certain books that I wish that I would have read a long time ago to get certain perspectives that I would have needed. And I feel like if we can get this book, especially the spiritual individuals into the hands of individuals before they deploy or before they have any kind of trauma, this is for any person, period. Because peace after combat doesn't necessarily mean peace after combat. It could be peace after any difficult human experience in life. And so um, that was the inspiration. And that just gave me what I needed, the, the energy to go write it because more people needed to, to get that answer. And I felt that piece was so important for so many. Every aspiring writer can talk about how hard it is to get an agent. And you just mentioned yours a moment ago. And then how hard it is to secure a publishing deal. I'm a little jealous. How did you do it? <laughs> you know, I, I was blessed. You know, let me just tell you about how much I sucked prior to this. So <laughs> I, I was really in a kick of writing dystopian fiction. I wanted to, I think it, what's her name? I think it's Suzanne Collins. God forgive me if I got her, her name wrong. I probably butchered it. But needless to say, she was the author of The Hunger Games. I was like, I'm going to write the next dystopian fiction. It's so amazing. <laughs> I got rejection after rejection after rejection after rejection, like probably 200 queries for an agent, period. Um, but then when the right thing comes into your heart, and I think it's spiritually driven, of course, um, I, I put out a query letter and uh, I put probably a total of 12 query letters and 50% of them received an agent wanting more information. And then within the first week of sending out a query, um, Linda Glass took me on. She's an amazing woman. Uh, she is one of the first women to have taught like combat arms in the military. And she's an Air Force veteran herself. So all of this just really was very close to her heart. And so she took it on and, and she fought for it at every angle, but it did take time to get a publisher. It took a really long time. It probably took um, about a year. And I said, Lord, literally like <laughs> after this year, if I don't get a publisher, <laughs> I am going to self-publish because this just is too much. And um, the reality was I said that prayer and within right, right towards the end, probably the anniversary of that publishing deal is like this week of, of 2019. Right. And so that was such a huge blessing because David C. Cook is the largest non-denominational Christian publisher in the world. So I was just ecstatic. And so ringing in the new year was very exciting as the book deal was coming through. That's awesome. And how long did it take you to write it? Um, it took probably about six months. I was just very ready to go and to write, um, very motivated. And I would spend a lot of my weekends doing that. And then all of a sudden, it just was the time building up, right? In between getting the agent and everything else. And, and well, not the agent, but the publishing deal. So <laughs> it was written well before it went to the publishing house. And what did you learn during the research process that surprised you or that you think would surprise people in our audience? You know, I think it's a number that we all know very well. And it's that unfortunate statistic of 22 suicides a day of veterans. Um, it's a very popular statistic. I think back in the day, it wasn't, um, it was just basically starting to resurface. And, and now it's become this trend, right? So people have done the 22 push-ups a day, you know, just to bring awareness to veteran suicides. And it was that statistic that I was like, yes, you know, if anybody was struggling with their faith and, and was a combat warrior, I wish I could have gotten that in their hands, you know, beforehand. And I was like, just gave me the sense of urgency to make that happen as soon as possible. And there is an organization, I believe it is called 22 a day. And I think the website is 22 day.org for those interested in looking. But also another statistic that I learned is we've lost more post 9-11 veterans to suicide than whose names are on the Vietnam wall Memorial in DC. And for anyone who's been to DC, that is a massive wall. 
Wow. I didn't know that. That that's that just gives me goosebumps in the wrong way. <laughs> and we are on that same trajectory with this, you know, veteran population for post 9-11 unless we do something. And so I, I appreciate the work that you and your colleagues are doing because they they need and deserve our help. Absolutely, 100 percent Wow. So some people think psychologists are all science, all clinical. How and why did you conclude that your mission is within the spiritual realm? You know, as as Pierre Cardin says, we are spiritual beings having a human experience. And I couldn't believe that statement anymore. It's so true in my heart. And I believe there's so many things like the concept of love that you just can't explain, right? We can talk about it from a neurochemical perspective, but there's so many dimensions and facets to it that you can't explain that. And so I believe firmly that healing is found in perfect love. And and to me, that is totally a spiritual realm. (laughs) The book is about recovering from the visible and invisible wounds of combat. Does every combat veteran experience post-traumatic stress to one extent or the other? You know, not everyone does. Everyone's brain is different, right? It's not a one size fits all. But, um, you know, even in life, right, we're not deployed. Traumatic events happen. Painful life experiences happen. I define trauma as just being stuck on a negative loop over and over again based on a past experience and not being able to get yourself unstuck to change your thinking, to change your behaviors, to change these negative patterns that are leading you down a downward spiral, essentially. But um, most combat veterans, when they come back, I would say the majority of them may not have PTSD or trauma. Um, Some of them do, and it's to a very severe degree. And some people may think that somebody who was just on a fob before an operating base listening to mortars drop would never get PTSD. But sometimes those individuals get PTSD. Trauma is not something to be judged. It's never, when when I worked in trauma groups, working with individuals, it was never compare or contrast your traumas, never saying your trauma was way worse than mine or mine was way less or, you know, mine's way more than yours. How can you even be in this group? Comparing it is is worthless. It's the human experience that counts because we don't understand the context of people's lives, how they were reared when they were growing up, right? And and just, of course, we're not all wired in the same way. We don't, we have similar neural circuitry as human beings, but we've done and, and have different experiences, different genes. So we have to take all of those things into account. And you talk about someone getting PTSD from, you know, just hearing mortars exploding, I remember seeing a few cases of, you talked about Air Force veterans actually getting post-traumatic stress and trauma, even though people don't think they do. Right. They would be flying drones and dropping bombs exactly. thousands of miles away. And you think of it as like a video game, but it's not. They know every time they push that button, they're taking human lives. Exactly. And over time, that's just got to be such a, a, a personal and mental and physical toll that can totally understand that. And so I think to your point, people just need to be aware. It's, it's more than, than you think in the veteran population. Yes. And I think some people believe that the veterans who have the most severe post-traumatic stress had to be the ones who went through the most horrific, even perhaps the most gruesome experiences. Is that a fact or fallacy? Well, it's just like what we talked about just recently. Um, it, it doesn't matter. We're all different and we all handle things differently. And I think that some really traumatic events obviously are going to lay really heavy on somebody's spirit, their mind, and even their physical body, right? And so um, then there's individuals like we talked about earlier, it, you know, they could have trauma from from waters. So it's not something that we can predict. It's not a one size fits all. And it's not something that we should ever come into the picture and, and, and judge a situation and experience and judge what a reaction should or could be. Conversations you have with patients who have been through combat, even though you're a trained psychologist whose job is to listen to people, 
must be extraordinarily difficult at times. How does a psychologist unburden themselves of the weight that's been shifted from the patient onto you? Wow, that's such a good question. You know, there's such a thing called vicarious traumatization, and family members can experience it, caregivers, psychologists, all sorts of therapists, just by listening to some of the stories that we hear on a regular basis. You know, my first year in the residency program, when I was getting, or after I obtained my doctorate degree and I was in residency, we're first being exposed to these severe trauma cases. And I tell you, when I came home, I was exhausted. Um, I was burned out. I was emotionally drained, right? And in fact, I started having nightmares about what people were telling me. And I was like, how do I deal with this? I started feeling myself sinking into sort of a depression at the beginning of my career. But then as you go on, you start to learn that there's algorithms to everything. <clears throat> there's algorithms to human thinking and behaving. And once you learn those algorithms, you start to kind of compartmentalize these things. You know, you hear the stories, you don't become, you become desensitized to it in a certain degree, but you don't lose your empathy or your compassion. You know, I'm desensitized to these stories and I've heard multiple stories, right? Um, but it doesn't mean that it will still evoke a tear, right? Or it will cause me to get choked up because it's the emotional experience in that moment that we're having. But you learn over time, you know, in scripture, it says you got to put on the whole armor of God. And I feel like I put on that whole armor of God before going in into my therapy sessions and praying for the person's healing and also my divine protection. And so in doing so and just having practice over the years, it's easy to actually come home and leave the baggage at the door and not take it into your daily life. I had two young gentlemen on about a year or so ago um, talking about a mental health in the black male community. And they said for them, they go to the barbershop and so their, bar their barber is their therapist. And my question was, well, who's the barber's barber? And so, you know, a similar question, who's a psychologist psychologist? Yeah. You know, as a psychologist, I do seek help. I do seek, sometimes I seek Christian counseling from some of my, um, actually my good friends who our pastors. I also have the blessing to have an incredible mother and husband who are there to support me through everything. And I think one of the most important things is, is not avoiding what's bothering you. Now, the hallmark trait of post-traumatic stress is avoidance, right? We don't want to deal with it. And avoidance, I always say, is like starts off like a little snowball and you want to avoid it. So you push it away in the snow. You keep pushing it and pushing it until eventually that, that snowball starts to collect and it becomes as big as the base of a snowman. And then before you know it, because you keep pushing it away because you don't want to deal with it, it becomes an avalanche in your life. And so I think for me, the most important things is knowing where my resources are and then always processing whenever I feel stuck on something, processing it verbally, emotionally. In fact, I'm big on emotion-focused movement, um, dancing, getting it out in a physical sense, right? Because the body also keeps a score of what happens and manifests in our mind. So very important. Earlier, you talked about the original title of your book, Where is God in War? Mm -hmm. We all know war is terrifying, war is awful. What do you tell them? Where is God in war? You know, I think the most important thing is helping people understand that God's not the author of the bad things. Um, from a Christian perspective, Jesus, fully man, fully God, all at the same time, was not immune to the pain and suffering of the world. So I have this little algorithm that I use, and I tell them in scripture, it says, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. And I tell them, if it's not love, then it's not from God. And I say, you are neurobiologically wired to love and to be loved. And in order to have love, what do you need? You need relationship, right? You're created for relationship. 
And in order to have relationship, what do you need as a precursor to relationship? You need to have choice, free will. You have to have decision, right? God could have made us or created us as automatons, but there would be no love. That wouldn't be the case because we'd just be robots and we'd be programmed to love and it wouldn't be something that we desire. And then a relationship could not exist. So we have free will, right? And we can operate in one of two ways. We can operate in love and grace and harmony, right? And with love, there is selfless behavior, right? And then we can operate on the other hand, with is, which is selfishness. And with selfishness comes the bad deeds and the bad acts of other people, Right. I tell my patients, God's never going to stop you from doing something bad because as soon as he stops you from doing something bad, he takes away your free will. And if you don't have free will, you can't have relationship. And then you can't have love, which I believe firmly is the purpose of our creation. So it all comes full circle. (laughs) Some of your patients lost their faith in God after they'd been through combat. Did you see as a professional or a personal obligation to help restore their faith? Um, You know, I don't see it as a professional one. I think people would oftentimes think I'm coloring outside of the lines when I talk so much about spirituality, not being a chaplain myself. Um, But I let my patients guide those questions and I always allow them answers. And I say, you know, this is food for thought. How does this make you feel from an emotional perspective? Does that give you peace? Does it lighten the load? And if it does, that's something that you can take on yourself. And it may be a belief that you want to plant as a seed in your mind so that it can take root. But I think definitely it's a spiritual one, not necessarily a professional one. You said several things on another podcast that stuck with me. The first was about a, quote, hallmark trait of post-traumatic stress, avoidance, yes. and, and the need to confront it. Talk about that, please. Yeah, we absolutely need to confront it. Like I said earlier, we don't want it to become the avalanche in our life, right? It's so important that we deal with it soon. So I gave you that snowball analogy earlier, but ideally we should have that snowball. And right when we have that, that problem, that ice cold problem that we don't want to deal with, that we don't want to hold, that we don't want to touch, what should we do? We should take it and we should throw it against the wall immediately. So it breaks into a bunch of pieces, right? That we're dealing with it and processing it and emotionally digesting because the brain's like the gut. It's got to emotionally digest. But the longer you keep toxic, like trauma, Trauma is toxic. It's like poison to the mind, to the body, to the brain, right? It affects every single cell in your body because it creates an energy. If we don't extract that poison, it's going to have really bad deleterious effects to your physical being as a whole. You know, my listeners know that, you know, by night, I'm a podcast guy by day, I'm in the financial services industry and have spent the better part of my 25 year career in lower Manhattan wow. and was at ground zero 9-11 saw the events unfold that day from a front row seat. And I've worked, since then I've worked within roughly, you know, I'll say maybe half a dozen blocks, most of the time around ground zero. I never went back there until 2018. I was going through a leadership program and I self-diagnosed myself with having PTSD from that day. And I mentioned in my book earlier and chapter one is about my day on 9-11. Wow. And that was my therapy in terms of unpacking it. Uh, you know, seeing people jump because that was their best option, seeing first responders rush in because that was their job and their duty and trying to, I don't know, take all that apart and figure it out. It was just, you know, it took me 18 years or 17 years to to finally realize it. And even though I haven't gone to seek formal treatment, just being able to address it and acknowledge it uh, and taking pen to paper journaling, we always hear something great for mental health, you know, therapy, if you will. Um, certainly helped. And so that's why I'm so interested in all the the PTSD work that you're doing that you've been talking about. So thank you. Wow. 
That is, that's so profound. I'm so glad that you were vulnerable about that. That's so very important to be vulnerable, to share our stories and our testimonies because we turn our problems into power. And I know that in that circumstance for you, you didn't have control over those situations. So it was just so hard to, to recognize the best thing that you could do was just stay where you are and maybe lift a prayer. Keep taking those next steps forward. Yes, sir. We've been talking to Dr. Tiffany Tajiri and we'll be right back after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. If you're struggling to understand your self-worth or deal with mental health challenges, you will want to tune into Your Life Matters Today with Dr. Cliff Robertson. Dr. Cliff and his guests will help you understand and work toward what you need to build your best life. Your Life Matters Today. Are you looking for life's answers? How about the meaning of true self? Can you really be a better person overnight? Well, good luck with that. Now, if you really want to know more about this insane world and life we lead, tune into Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. You'll learn about how the brain operates under different psychological conditions. Some common sense. Heck, you might just actually learn something. Listen Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. You are listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. We are back. I'm Chris Meek, host of Next Steps Forward. And my guest today is Dr. Tiffany Tajiri. She's a licensed and board-certified clinical psychologist, an Air Force veteran, and former Army clinic chief. She's the first woman to publish a faith-based combat recovery book, Peace After Combat. Tiffany, I've heard that a traumatic experience actually rewires your brain, and you touched on that earlier in the show. You say that it goes far beyond that, that our thinking affects us right down to our DNA and every single protein inside us. Mm-hmm. Walk us through the concept, because I just find that point absolutely fascinating. Yeah. So get how powerful your brain is. Your brain generates more energy in one day than all the cell phones in the world combined. Whoa, that's a lot, right? (laughs) 
And, and so you have to think that your brain consists of your thought life, which is your mind. So there's a difference between your mind versus your brain. Okay. So your mind <clears throat> determines the mental real estate of your brain, how your brain is shaped, how it wires and how it fires. So you can imagine with all that energy, our thoughts are energetic. They're electromagnetic signatures, right? Every thought that we have. And so that negative thinking, negative energy and negative emotions Think about how they can be weaponized against us if our brain can generate more electrical impulses in one day than all the cell phones in the world combined. And that is really unhealthy. How? Because your thoughts, which is your come from your mind, your mind affects your brain. And your brain affects your heart and your heart affects every growth medium in your body. And you ask me, what is the growth medium? It's your blood, right? So your thoughts affect every single cell. And if you have chronic stress and chronic trauma, you're constantly on adrenaline flowing through your body and cortisol, that stress hormone, it just damages you. And that's what PTSD is. You are constantly triggered in survival mode, living on past programs of the subconscious mind. And so, like we said earlier, it can impact your genetics. There's such thing, Chris, as transgenerational trauma. We can pass on that genetic predisposition to our offspring. I'm not saying the trauma memory is what you pass on. I'm not saying that at all, but I'm talking about the genetic predisposition of anxiety, depression, negative thoughts, right? feeling um, in your survival mode, feeling keyed up inside, hypervigilance, all of those things. Does our brain need to be rewired? I mean, can it really be rewired after a traumatic experience? And if so, how can the brain change a traumatic memory into a regular sort of memory to minimize the trauma? Yeah, that's a great question. There's a process called creative reconceptualization that I use in rhythm restoration. In fact, you know, all trauma is is stored in the fear center of the brain and the fear center is the amygdala. And what we want to do in order to process is get it out of the fear center of the brain, bring it to the frontal lobe. The frontal lobe is the intelligent part of us. It's what makes us different than a chimpanzee. It's responsible for problem solving, all executive functioning, attention, concentration, timing, you name it, right? And so when we pull it to the frontal lobe, we start dissecting it right? We start dissecting the should have, could have, would have. We put a positive context to it. We start removing ourselves from being the bad guy in the situation and start looking at it from a, a different adaptive perspective. And then we start even, we can use creativity to change the circumstance, to change the scenario just through visualization, because the brain doesn't know the difference between a real and an imagined experience. Now your mind knows the difference, but your brain doesn't. But when you start getting creative, for example, my combat veterans who have unfortunately had to see their brothers or sisters bleed out in their arms, right? That's the last memory that they have. So I asked them to bring it forward. And then I asked them through creative reconceptualization. I say, I want you to visualize, we do some butterfly tapping and they close their eyes. I want you to visualize finding those individuals in heaven. And what would they say to you? I want you to see them healed and made whole. What would they say to you? How would they want you to live now that they're in their perfect spiritual selves? And then they start to cry and they feel relieved. They say, they want me to live free. They don't want me to be stuck on this image. They want me not to remember them in their worst moment in their life. They want me to remember them. That one time they made me laugh so hard, I pissed my pants. I got to keep that memory in mind. And so what they're doing is they're changing the structure of the proteins of the old memory, extracting the poison, the toxin from it, reshaping the memory. And then it no longer files back into the amygdala, which is the fear center of the brain, 
but rather files back into the hippocampus, which is the regular long-term memory. What would they say to you that is so powerful? Yes. Wow. What is twisted guilt as it applies to post-traumatic stress and how do you go about treating it? Yeah. So true guilt, well, here's how I explain it. You have only control of certain things in your life. The only thing you have control of are your own thoughts, your emotions, and your behaviors. You don't have external control over everything or anything, right? You either have a high degree of influence or a low degree of influence, but you have no external control. Now, I can't control you on the other end. Yes, somebody could put a weapon to your head and they would have a high degree of influence over you, right? But they can't control you because you can still do whatever you want to do with the weapon towards your head. And so the idea is that when we are jerks, (laughs) um, that's when we have true guilt because whatever we did, right. Our, you know, how we acted, how we, how we engaged with people, what we said, if we were a jerk or, you know, just not nice period, that's something that we can change because it was something that we had control over. Right. But there are situations like in combat where, we don't have control over the circumstances. We only have influence. And I believe particularly in the military, they're trained to take responsibility for everything. If you're in leadership, no matter what the outcome may be, it's your fault, right? But you don't have influence over the external. You have a low degree sometimes of influence over the external events. You don't have a crystal ball to predict the future, to know where the IEDs are planted, right? You can do the very best with the equipment that you have. And so oftentimes people manifest twisted guilt. They start blaming themselves for things that they had no control over. And they also start blaming themselves for things that they have very little influence over, right? They did their best in the situation, but they start internalizing self-blame and start thinking that they're less than, that they're not worthy. And then they have survivor's guilt because of it. And so it's really important for us to recognize we can only control so much in life. And if we were the jerk and we have true guilt, there's such thing as regret. And regret is beautiful because it gives us the opportunity to make change. If we don't like what we're feeling or what we're doing, we can change our behavior so that we don't fall into that same past dysfunction. How often do you see people experience post-traumatic stress who also have twisted guilt? Uh, I would say the majority of the time. And it seems as if someone with post-traumatic stress is stuck in the past, obviously even stuck in a single day, or you mentioned a moment. Is that a proper interpretation? Are they simply stuck? And does that mean that they're afraid of the future? Yeah, there's a lot of fear in the future with post-traumatic stress. Um, They are stuck. They're actually living on past survival mode instinct. Those are programs that were happening when the event occurred. You're staying stuck in survival mode and you're not shifting forward. And that, like we said earlier, is super unhealthy spiritually, psychologically. And as we talked about, it can affect every single cell in your body. And you said before that the goal of the human brain is to find wholeness. How can we turn the brain's goal for wholeness into a safe harbor, into peace? Oh, that's so good. You know, wholeness. Just think about the situation we just talked about you earlier, that visualization of seeing those service members who had passed away and they were in gruesome situations or in settings, right? Even their bodies may have been mangled, but for the person who survived to see them healed and made whole, you know, the brain, even in Gestalt, there's a type of psychology called Gestalt psychology. And it's where we see things, even from a cognitive perspective as whole, right? And wholeness essentially in and of itself brings a sense of peace because in wholeness, there is completion and with completion comes peace and not peace as in P-I-E-C-E, but rather P-E-A-C-E. You've experienced trauma yourself when you witnessed an air show accident in which people were killed. Mm -hmm. 
How did you cope with that? And did it change you as a psychologist? It absolutely changed me. Um, and I think it was one of the worst things that could obviously happen in an air show. Um, and it hurt my heart and broke my heart. But being on the other end of trauma made me infinitely more compassionate and really helped me to understand what my patients were going through and what they were struggling with, right? You know, as a very young psychologist, I didn't want to admit that I had experienced trauma myself, you know, because then I started thinking, well, then they're going to think she's a quack. And as a young psychologist, that was like well over 15 years ago. <laughs> I looked like a child and I wore my hair in like little braids and everything and put it up. <laughs> People weren't going to take me seriously, especially if I had trauma. So I really worked hard to stuff it. And I recognized, Hey, that's not what I'm supposed to do. You know, I need to get the help that I need to. And I ended up talking to a wonderful Colonel and she was amazing. And she helped me get um, EMDR treatment, which I found was fantastic. And I probably ended up only probably doing three or four sessions and uh, it inspired me to learn EMDR. And so um, there's beauty for ashes in that the Phoenix was rising essentially. And um, I had to create my own visualizations that would bring me the healing that I needed. And I also had to get unstuck from twisted guilt because there were certain things that I felt um, I could have had control over, or there were variables that were, and I came into play. You know, we start creating these things in our head because the idea of having control gives us a sense of safety. But when we don't have control, we start to grapple with how can we get control again, right? Control is very precious to us, but the reality is we don't usually have control over any external event only in how we deal and perceive with things. Is it difficult for most psychologists to ask for help? I think it can be. I think that um, <clears throat> psychologists are an interesting breed of individuals. I don't think I fit in well with most psychologists. <laughs> I color outside the lines with my my movement therapy, you know, with rhythm restoration, with spirituality and everything. Um, and I think probably, I think we tend to be more of... Um, a precious breed. We can be snobby <laughs> and aloof at times. You know, I, there is a stereotype, I believe. And, and there are hard people that, you know, obviously make that stereotype, but there's some that are very different. And so I think it can be um, a challenge for us to ask for help because we're the ones always with the answers. It can be somewhat of a nar narcissistic, egotistical perspective. And to ask for help is really just coming off that high horse, which is something that we need to do. We need to, to practice what we preach and expose that vulnerability so that we can get the healing that we need in order to be better for the patients we're caring for. I'm laughing when you talked about the stereotype, you know, I'm going to show my age here, but I think back to uh, Dr. Fraser Crane from Cheers and the show Fraser, yes. uh, and that's a bit of the stereotype. But on the other side of that, I mentioned USC where we do our work with the virtual reality and uh, there's a doctor there, Skip Rizzo, who's been on the show. He's a 65-year-old, long hair, Harley Ryden clinical psychologist. And so cool. it's the two extremes there. So put the stereotype out the window because it's not true anymore. <laughs> right on. <laughs> and am I correct that your trauma and treatment were the foundational experience in your creation of rhythm restoration? Yeah, I would say so. Um you know, working with EMDR, EMDR is fantastic. It's eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. It also uses bilateral stimulation as a catalyst. But rhythm restoration is so different because it uses the power of visualization that EMDR doesn't capitalize on. And as you become a therapist, you start to see the algorithms of the healing visualizations that people need in order to feel that sense of wholeness. And so with EMDR, it's very much go with that. It's very free association about whatever comes to your mind. But with um 
um, rhythm restoration, it's very different. It's like, I'm giving you the visualization. You're going to go with that and see how that feels for you. And then we're going to alter the visualization together. And we're constantly using this sense of creative reconceptualization to extract the poison from the toxic experience that's still left in their mind and their memory. Rhythm restoration is described as an innovative faith-based method that uses visualization and bilateral stimulation to help those who've endured psychologically painful life experiences. Drill down that description for us, please. Yeah. So one, rhythm helps regulate the autonomic nervous system. It helps to soothe us. It helps to calm us. The first thing we ever heard when we were in our mother's womb as we were forming was her heartbeat. So we were developed to a rhythm, right? The second part is bilateral stimulation. Now, as you know, if I raise my right hand, the left hemisphere of my brain is triggered and vice versa. It's a contralateral indication. And so with rhythm and with bilateral stimulation, we're engaging both hemispheres of the brain. And that's very important. When we go on a walk, a jog, or a run, right? Or even, you know, pedaling on a bike or even swimming, we're engaging bilateral stimulation. We do it organically in REM sleep, which stands for rapid eye movement. And in rapid eye movement, our eyes are going back and forth in our head. They're engaging in bilateral stimulation, triggering both hemispheres of the brain to help us process and to digest. So I find that bilateral stimulation is a fantastic way for the brain to digest experiences. It also improves what we call brain-derived neurotropic factor and helps promote neurogenesis, which is um, increasing the amount of new neurons in our brain, healthy neurons that we can refire and rewire. And then, like I said earlier, visualization is so important because the brain doesn't know the difference between a real and an imagined experience. In fact, there's been studies where people visualize doing exercises. So for example, one group visualized doing exercises, you know, to strengthen their muscles. Another group actually did the exercises. And of course there was a cohort for a baseline who did nothing at all. And so in the end, the individuals who actually visualized doing those exercises had 22% muscular strength gain in those areas of the body that they were visualizing utilizing. And so those individuals who actually did the exercises had 30% strength gain who did them. So visualization is so profound. We know our Olympic athletes are constantly visualizing their routines because you're laying down a new neural network in your brain. It's the same type of neural network you'd be laying down if you experienced it. So you're actually anticipating the event before it happens, which is very helpful for the brain to fire and wire together. How long did it take you from that seat of inspiration to the moment when you were putting rhythm restoration into action? You know, it was really coloring outside the lines again. <laughs> so it was super amazing to to see it manifest. And I think it, the most important thing was having people who believed in me and allowing me to use it in cer- certain circumstances in the recovery church that I, I, I um, helped to write the curriculum for uses rhythm restoration. We use it on a crowd of over 150 people and it works wonderfully. The visualizations that we use together as a whole, right? It's, it's amazing. And it's having people have faith in what I was doing really allowed me to have the confidence to take the next steps. In fact, I created something new, which I'll be debuting next year is called freedom rhythm. It's using rhythm restoration, that visualization, and then taking that visualization and putting it into movement, 
physical movement using beautiful silk, um, silk flags, silk ribbons, because the silk responds so well to any little flick of the wrist that we do. Anyone can do it. Children can do it. Um, my 90 year old grandmother can sit on a chair and do it, work with the silks. And it's just a great way of projecting that energy and that emotion outward, because as you may have heard, there's a book that's stated the body keeps a score of the trauma. What we want to do is we don't want the body to have a score. We want the body to zero in at neutral. And so extracting that emotion, the negative emotion and embracing that positive emotion really helps us to restore ourselves. Earlier, we talked about you co-authoring the recovery curriculum at your church. Mm -hmm. Why does a church need to offer that? Oh, yes. You know, I think it's so important for the church. I mean, all of us have situations in our lives that are painful, you know, a church that honors those painful experiences. And, and if you put it in perspective of the Christian faith, you know, Jesus path in life was not an easy path and he did endure pain and suffering. He didn't endure ridicule. Well, we endure the same thing. And we have to be honest about, you know, sometimes People have been told, pray it away, or you don't have enough faith. And that's why it hasn't gone away. And the reality is scripture tells us we got to rebuke the enemy, but rebuking the enemy is an action that we have to take in and of itself, an action that we have to, what we can work it through it with prayer, right? But an action that we have to take in order to rewire our minds. And, and in scripture, it says we want to rewire our minds to have the mind of Christ. It's a mindset that is free and it's grounded in selflessness and in love. And so we have to learn how to do that. And every human has negative experiences. So I think Abundant Recovery, which is the name of the program, is great for anyone who's gone through human life, period. We need to learn how to wire our brains and we need to learn about how God handles those situations and what scripture says about it. Because I find that scripture is really, truly backs up neuroscience and it's phenomenal how it does. Should other churches also offer a recovery curriculum and is yours available to them if interested? Yes, absolutely. Where can they find it? Or you? So we would have to, yeah, contact me and we'll work together with the church to, to help you understand the curriculum that we're running. And we're actually getting ready to work it into publication because I think it's something that is so needed. Let's shift back to the topic of the military and mental health. As you look at the mental health services provided to active duty personnel and veterans, are we taking care of our servicemen and women and our veterans as well as we should? <clears throat> should's a big word, right? We don't want to be shooting all over the place. <laughs> so I tell my patients. Um, I think we're doing the best with the resources that we have. And I here's one of the things that broke my heart when I was still working for the government. Um, I recently resigned about five months ago at, to do my own thing, again, to continue creating and coloring outside the lines. But one of the things that broke my heart is that the attrition rate for therapists and psychologists is really low. We don't have enough therapists. We don't have enough psychologists. The provider to patient ratio is ridiculous, right? Um, access to care, to be able to receive mental health services across the board to include in my local community, it's impossible. Many providers are not taking new patients anymore and continuing to work with patients that they have. Um, and so we don't, we need people to become therapists. We need people to feel that calling and to take the next steps forward. But there's been a lot of burnout since the pandemic for therapists and I believe a lot of attrition. And for that being said, yeah, that's across the board for the United States of America. So, you know, the military is a microcosm and a reflection of that. And it's even harder to work with the military populations because psychologists and therapists are required to do so much more working for the military than they are required to do in private practice because we're not only working for the patient, but we're safeguarding 
whatever military branch we are working for. You're also a host of the podcast, Behind the Service. Mm -hmm. How'd you become involved in that? Yes. So my particular podcast from Behind the Service is Peace After Combat. And I had the blessing to be kind of just found and heard by my sister, Libby, which I call her my sister from another mister. She's amazing. She's a <laughs> podcast host herself, and she's the, the director of Behind the Service. And she heard me on April Osteen's podcast, um, and I think, or maybe Morning Cup of Coffee, one of the two. But she heard two Christian podcasts, really liked it, thought my message aligned um with her podcast. And she said, Hey, come join the team. And so she's been a miracle worker to help me get that podcast up and running. And where can people in our audience find behind the service? Anywhere you listen to podcasts. So my podcast is called peace after combat. So there's a bigger umbrella podcast that's peace um, behind the service that has all different sorts of podcasts to include my own. So peace after combat can be anywhere you find podcasts from um, your iTunes to Spotify, wherever you find it, it's going to be there. (laughs) And we have just a few minutes left. How can people get in touch with you and how can they get a copy of your book? Yeah, drtiffanytajiri.com. That's spelled D-R-Tiffany, T-I-F-F-A-N-Y, like Tiffany and Company. And here's my last name. It's kind of a mouthful, but Tajiri, (laughs) I will spell it phonetically for you. T as in Tango, A as in Alpha, J as in Juliet, I as in India, R as in Romeo, I as in India.com. You can also find me on social media. I'm very active on Instagram, posting lots of videos. I continue to repost those videos on YouTube. Um, as well as Facebook. So reach out to me if you have any questions or concerns. You know, I have my email. It's on my website. So you can always reach out and, and I'd be obliged to hear from you. And of course, buy my book at Barnes and Nobles, barnesandnobles.com, Christian booksellers, Amazon, wherever major books are sold. Sold. I can't even speak. <laughs> it's been a long hour. You've been stuck with me for the last 55 minutes. Oh. Dr. Tiffany Tajiri, thank you so much for being with us today. It was a real pleasure and honor. Well, Chris, you know, I love your mission. Next steps forward is what we have to do. I mean, you know, with trauma, we have to take the next steps forward. We can't stay stagnant. We can't stay stuck. We can't allow the quicksand to consume us. We got to pull ourselves up. It's challenging at times, but taking those next steps forward, no matter how big or small those steps are, that first initial baby step is what's going to be the catalyst to propel you forward to where you need to go. And the goal is for us not to get overwhelmed by the marathon that we need to run, but to enjoy every step that we take and live in the present moment and be mindful in what we're doing. You can find Dr. Tiffany Tajiri's book, Peace After Combat, at all fine booksellers. We're out of time. I'm Chris Meek. Follow me at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek public figure and on Twitter at Chris Meek underscore USA to see our next guest. We'll see you next week, same time, same place. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.